Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dan Barber is the chef and co-owner of Blue Hill and Blue Hill at Stone Barns, the best-selling author of The Third Plate, and the recipient of numerous James Beard Awards, including Best Chef in New York City and America's Outstanding Chef. And he was also named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. It's an honor to have him here on the show today. Dan, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great to have you. I'm a huge personal fan of all things Blue Hill and all that you've brought to the local movement. It is so critical in 2020. And I want to go back to the beginning and let's start with your personal health journey, specifically as it pertains to food. Can you walk us through that journey and how you got to where you are today? I grew up in part on a dairy farm in Western Massachusetts, Blue Hill. So I was inculcated with this kind of ethic of open space and I guess responsibility for open space and beauty and pasture, especially iconic pastures of New England uh, and the Hudson Valley and animals role and relationship with that and our role and relationship with that but all sort of soft and under the radar you know my grandmother was the owner of the farm and she wasn't about sustainability she was really about beauty and aesthetics but you know i think i internalized it in a variety of ways and when i sought cooking as a path forward you know i i incorporated some of these maybe unconscious ideas into my culinary appetites and my drive is for flavor it's not really about health you know i don't i'm not a nutritionist although i would argue all chefs are nutritionists because in the pursuit of flavor i have learned that a true delicious vegetable or say carrot which i'm looking at right now in my kitchen that was picked this morning is also a healthy carrot because a truly delicious carrot has to come from the right kind of seed so it can't be a carrot seed that's supposed to grow in sand in, you know, California or Florida like that. That doesn't produce any flavor, it produces a big carrot, but it doesn't produce a flavorful carrot. So, you know, it has to be from the right seed. It has to be grown in the right soil because you can't get draw really, truly jaw-droppingly delicious flavor unless it's from good biologically active soil. So right there, a delicious carrot is defined by a seed that's full of nutrient density and flavor, flavonoids, which are nutrients. It's grown in the right soil and it's picked at the right moment. So, you know, to, to pursue deliciousness and health is maybe one of my late inning revelations. That I, was on the, <laughs> I didn't realize that going into it. I was just, you know, in pursuit of the flavor. But you turn out that you... If you get very dogged about it, and as chefs, we curate flavor, you're also curating nutrition. And that's a very exciting correspondence that's, um, that's very pleasurable. Well, they're not, what's, what's, what I think is so exciting about what you just said is, you know, great food and nutrition do not have to be mutually exclusive. And you say you're not a nutritionist, yet like your focus is on nutrient density. And if you talk to a nutritionist, they would say that they talk about nutrient density, but you're coming at it from a different perspective. You're there for the flavor. Yeah. I mean, when you look at genetic mapping, which we can do now, because I have a seed company called Row 7, so I'm, I'm very interested in the genetics of vegetables and grains and, and you know, their, the genetic history, the genealogy of this stuff. And you look at selections that are made for whatever seed we're talking about, whether it's carrot or squash or wheat or barley. And almost always when you're selecting for 
those genetic traits that potentially express flavor and, and deliciousness, you're going also for the flavonoids again, because the flavonoids are flavor. So that suite of, of vitamins and nutrition is the same as delicious. And that's just, that's, you know, sort of axiomatic when you think about it from the beginning of time, you know, we were selecting not just for what could come out of the ground and grow, but for we saved and continued to grow what struck us as really pleasurable. And that's a very important point with eating and nutrition, I think. So there are a couple of points I want to unpack. One is you talk about soil. I want to talk about regenerative agriculture and then also the work you're doing at Row 7 and plant breeding. So I'll start with plant breeding. What's the potential there and why is it so critical to start at the seed? You know, what is the next honey nut squash and how can agriculture and the food industry, you know, work together better? If we don't start with seed, we get a seed industry that's producing vegetables and grains that lack nutrient density and they lack, as I just said, a lot of flavor. And the reason that you want to start with the seed is because you can't course correct later on. You, you've got seed companies today and of the last 10, 10 or 20 years, all very new development that are R&Ding, that are producing, that are selecting the carrot not to be grown in this climate outside my window, but to be grown in also Florida and Michigan and Texas, you know, and Oregon and Southern California and Canada and Mexico and increasingly China. And that when you do that from genetic selection point of view, which is really the, you know, the first principles of good food, it starts with the seed, it has to, when you are selecting across a, a range like that, you're dumbing down genetics to get it to grow in all those different climates. You're doing the most baseline you can do and you start throwing away everything else. And what you're throwing away generally is the kind of nutrition that develops out of a response to environment. And that's very key because environment is, is so key in that selection is you wanna, in this area, you wanna select for cold tolerance. And therefore you, cause you particularly want to pick a carrot right now today that I'm looking at, that came out of the ground, that live through the near freezing temperatures of the last four or five days. Because the near freezing temperature last four or five days converted the starches in the carrot to sugars and raised the bricks. And when you raise the bricks, you get all sorts of nutrition that's available to you that wasn't there before. And you also get sweetness because bricks is sugar. And so a plant physiologist said it to me once, he was a poet, but he, he said it like poetry. He said, what you're tasting is sweetness, but what the plant is saying is it doesn't want to die. Mm. So what that carrot was selected for was to prevent death, and it did it by converting starches to sugars. That's the kind of thing that I want to not only protect, but be a bulldog for, you know? And I want to be a bulldog for it because it makes me look like a better chef when you come in my restaurant for dinner and you have a carrot you have a, a, a carrot steak as we serving tonight or a carrot salad or whatever the carrot iteration is, I look like a much more genius chef because those starches have been converted to sugars. That's taking advantage of the cold climate and the soil conditions we have here, but really that's taking advantage of genetic traits that we selected for cold weather. You'd select a very different carrot for Southern California, and you should. And that's kind of the point of seed selection is it's extremely local and extremely based on it's based on microecologies, which is how it's been since the beginning of time. And what's happened, as I said, of late 
is that seed companies do the exact opposite, one size fits all. And that's been detrimental to the enjoyment of vegetable and grains, which by the way, as you know better than I do, we're being told to eat more of. Mm -hmm. Except we're told to eat more of the kinds of vegetables and grains that are being selected for wide distribution and lack of flavor. I love your passion, enthusiasm, and the language you use to talk about the carrot. And I, you mentioned- Well, I'm just getting started, man. I mean, <laughs> a, carrot is a carrot is a virtuous carrot too. I left that out. It's not just delicious and, and nutrient dense, it's virtuous. Because look, the carrot that I'm looking at that was picked this morning was picked from a small farm. And I happen to know the farmer, but it was a local farm and it was a small farm. And that local farmer is true of most local farms, which is that they have workers, farm workers on the farm who are paid a fair wage. You know, and that's because it's local and it's small. And that's the deal with local farming is you're generally paying workers for work served and it's not machine work. And so all of a sudden it becomes a very political carrot because mm -hmm. it's a social justice carrot. It, it's weaved into the fabric of agriculture, which has culture in the word. And that's so, so, you know, it's not just deliciousness, nutritiousness and virtue, virtuousness. They're all one and the same subject. We just, we don't, we, we lack the language for that. And actually I would say the language is expressed through flavor. I really believe that. And I think chefs play a role in curating that and in broadcasting it so i love it well after this podcast if you wouldn't mind i would love if you could send a photo of this carrot i would love to see it uh and share it with our audience and, and so you're touching on agriculture and agribusiness and you have this quote where you say farmers and breeders are directed by the marketplace the large agribusiness companies that value yield and uniformity over everything else so Let's talk about that for a minute and the problem we have here. And, you know, you talked about row seven and fill us in about what you're looking to accomplish there. With row seven. Yes. Yeah. Well, we're trying to, it's like David and Goliath, you know, we're trying to turn the conversation around from a one size fits all carrot to a carrot that's been bred and selected for microclimates. So that's a very costly thing. I mean, now I'm in it and I get it. I mean, the R and D is very expensive. And I get why from a P&L perspective, you know, you'd want to be doing one carrot and shipping it all over the place. But that's not a delicious carrot. It's not a nutrient dense carrot. And it's not the, the future of good of food. It's just not. I, I, I reject the idea that food's going to continue to be shipped from all over. You know, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So that's one peak into what happens when there's a fast and furious breakdown of that food chain. God forbid we had a, a pathogen or a virus that, you know, pathogen that infected food. What would happen? I mean, that how would our, what would our food system look like overnight? So we need to breed for more locality. We, we need to do that, not just because of the threat of pathogens, but for, for global climate change. There's no question that the future of good eating is in local food. Well, you mentioned, you know, COVID and also I think we have to start thinking about how we're treating animals and agriculture in general. And, you know, something, you know, regenerative agriculture, you talk about soil health, nutrient density, you know, what are your thoughts? Is regenerative agriculture, how much of that is the answer? What else would you suggest? 
I would suggest get, getting rid of the word regenerative agriculture because <laughs> everyone and their mother is adopting it for their, you know, Monsanto says regenerative. I mean, I, I, it means nothing because it's like trying to new word for organic. It's really organic. It should be organic and we should be pretty strict about what organic is the way to go. It's not regenerative. You can, you know, like I said, Monsanto is breeding genetically modified seeds that require a chemical cocktail load on soil and on ecologies that's unprecedented. And they call themselves regenerative because they're, they say they're in the world. So I don't regenerative because it's so open to interpretation. I like organic because it really starts to dig into what, what we need to look at, which is the whole organism. And that's soil health, that's cultural health, that's you know deliciousness, obviously nutrient density, ecological health, and then the social health is mixed into the organic principles. That's why it's an organic, comes from organism, it's one body. You can't separate anything from anything else. So who, what is being grown is just as important as who's growing it and how they're growing it and how it's getting to you. It's all one one subject and regenerative doesn't deal with that, which is why it's, it's the race to the bottom with that term. So how does someone, you know, support local beyond shopping at the farmer's market? Any tips for people out there who, who want to do that and do the right thing, but maybe don't have a farmer's market nearby? Well, yeah, I would expand what you're saying to, to cook. I mean, I would yeah. I just, you know, cooking is like a big deal because when you're cooking, you know, someone else is not cooking for you. And when someone else is not cooking for you, you're generally eating better. You're less wasteful, for sure. You're eating with more attention. And that's generally a pretty good thing. Less processed is generally a very good thing. So I would add to the market, the, the morning market list, you know, cooking your meal, your dinner. And then there's so many ways in through local food. I mean, now there's a whole restaurant community, not just high-end ones, but very approachable, you know, restaurants that are supporting a local food chain. And those and their products in supermarkets now that are supporting local farmers. So there's there are more ways into supporting local agriculture now than there ever have been in the history of the United States and probably beyond. So it's a very interesting time to activate this very important food chain. So, you know, you talk about culture, food equity, making healthy food accessible comes to mind and also diversity. Uh, and inclusion. And so do you have any thoughts about, you know, one, how do we get more nutrient dense local food to people who need it? And as an industry, what are initiatives or changes you'd like to see to make it more inclusive? Well, I mean, on the industry web, if we're going to take big ticket things, because you're asking a complicated, there's not one yes. solution. Yes. So, you know, it's a list. <laughs> but if I had to pick you know, one, well, I had to pick one or two. I'd put right up there how we subsidize a grain economy. I mean, our tax dollars go to supporting the beef industry and the chicken industry and the pig industry. We're feeding these animals 190 million plus acres of corn and soybeans. So we're taking 190 million prime, the most prime agricultural land in the United States, which is 190 million acres of some of the most prime agriculture area in the world. And we are exporting that in through an animal. And that's terrible on the ecological load of the 190 million acres. Corn and soy rotations are a disaster for water quality, for toxicity, for soils, for soil degradation, for the CO2 emissions, on and on. It's the worst possible way to produce agriculture in this monoculture environment. And we know that. And then we take that amazing tonnage that we produce 
and we feed it through animals. And so we eat that meat, but it's an extremely inefficient way to utilize natural resources. So if I were to change one thing, I'd probably change the game of, of subsidizing that economy and instead subsidizing a local food economy. I'm not anti-meat. I really believe in eating meat. I just believe in eating the right amounts of meat. You know, a six ounce, six ounce piece of protein that centers our plates for lunch and dinner seven days a week there is no environment in the world that can deliver on that. And that's the westernized conception of a plate of food. So we need to change that one. Well, I'm glad you brought up meat. That's my next question. Is meat consumption still considered unsustainable? Or is there a way to do meat in a more sustainable way? Is it about well, grass-fed? Is it, you know, grass-fed, grass-finished, and we all need to eat less of it? So is a little bit, is it quality and quantity? If you're investing today in food, you're probably, you know, you're drawn more and more to these companies that are saying remove meat from the diet completely and invest, you know, in the impossible burgers of the world. I'm not, I don't buy it. I mean, I'm just looking outside my window over here and I'm looking at 200 acres of pasture land that's being managed, improved and sequestered of carbon with incredible soil tilth uh, and diversity of grasses, with flora and fauna and everything else that goes with it that's managed through grass-fed beef and running some chickens to clean up the cow pies and spread the manure for the next for the next round of grasses. I mean, it's, you know, eating beef, raising beef animals on 100% grass diet or dairy cow, is it extremely sustainable? Not just sustainable, it is carbon improving and environmentally improving. The, the problem is how much of it do you eat? And that's right. the issue. So we have to change the architecture of our expectation for a plate of food. And right now the expectation for a plate of food is six or seven ounces of a protein at the center of your plate with a smattering of you know vegetables and grains. So, so what th that beautiful image you just described for all of us of your farm, that's what I think of when I think of regenerative agriculture. But you're saying that definition is being watered down now. But the, when you, what you just described, the tilth, the great everything, that to me is regenerative ag. I'm 100% pasture. Yep. And unfortunately, most people who are describing regenerative, either dairy industry or beef industry, will, won't even touch 100% pasture. In fact, most of the diet of these cows will, especially at the end of their life, will be nothing but that corn and soy rotation I was talking about before. So I, I'm not buying into the to the regenerative thing, but organic, and when it comes to animals, it's organic plus pasture. It's 100% pasture is the tagline. That has not just the tagline, that has to be the ethic. And it's, by the way, produces the most delicious beef in the world. I and agree. You, a lot of, yeah, you agree, you don't need a lot of it. To, you know, it's pretty satiating, very satiating. So we've got, you know, we got to look at cuisines and, and cultures from around the world. No one ever has introduced, you, you cannot point to a cuisine that has lasted. In other words, we celebrate in some way or another today that centers its dinner plate on six or seven ounces of meat. It's just unheard of. I mean, look at look everywhere. Look at Italy, India, all of the it, thousands of iterations of Chinese food, Japanese. Nobody would, this is impossible. Yet, America became possible because we're so rich. I mean, we were so rich agriculturally. We were so rich. And so we could afford that kind of uh, food culture. And unfortunately, we're exporting it to the rest of the world right now, but at a great, you know, at a great cost. Do, do you think, is that the biggest challenge? Is it subsidy in general? Like as the food industry, as we look, we've got an environmental problem right now. We've got a food problem. We have an obesity. We've got lots of problems here. I won't list every one, but like right. is... 
Is that the biggest challenge of, of the food industry? Is it subsidies in your opinion? Well, you were asking me to rank and I was like, you know, if I'm gonna rank something that kind of ties a lot of stuff together, it's the yep. fact that you have 190 million acres of very productive farmland that's being funneled through animals that don't taste very good, that's extremely inefficient, deleterious to our environment and our health. And so one thing to, to help change that is create a free market. I'm just asking for a free market. I'm not asking for a handout for a local farm. I'm asking for a free market so we can compete effectively. The price of, of commodity beef is so cheap because our tax dollars go to pay it. That's the reason. So I'll, I'll segue to the, you know, at Blue Hill, I've been to Stone Barns and I've been to Blue Hill in the city. So I've been to both several times and you're known for this. You create such an amazing experience. You went on and on about the, you know, the indelible impression a carrot can make when framed up in the appropriate way. And you've also said that it's been said that your food philosophy is centered around pleasure and thoughtful conversation. And so, you know, on one hand, you're a food activist. And the other hand, we're talking about pleasure and thoughtful conversation. And, and I'm curious from an experience standpoint, how do you ensure that hap that happens, especially in what we're going through now as a culture? Yeah, it's always hard to think about important, weighty, that way, I mean, serious issues in the context of hedonism and delight. Yeah, but, then it, but it's important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but how else do you talk about them and make them really become inculcated into mainstream food culture? I mean, I think that's been the success of local organic food is that it's been about hedonism and pleasure. Just look at the environmental movement. It's so depressing. <laughs> everything is you give up this and you have to stop traveling here and you have to die. Everything is you have to give it. It's like religion. You know, no wonder religion loses flavor. It's all about you're giving up for the, you know, fulfillment and for uh, global warming. It's the same thing. But with local food, it's about having being greedy, actually, for pleasure and hedonism. And that's that's what, you know, we can rail all we want about it. American food culture because it's pretty in a pretty dismal state. But one thing that's great about American food culture is that we're nimble, you know, and we are greedy for happiness. And, and we're, we always find money for something that tastes good, you know, and that's where I feel like the chef's role is so key because we're curating this stuff and we have a real opportunity to introduce real food to people in a way that makes them pay just a little bit more for something that is better for them and better for the environment. I love it. And so uh, in closing, my, you know, you mentioned being nimble and, and you've been quite nimble. You've been changing things up at Blue Hill Stone Barns and, and Blue Hill here in the city. Can you share like what's new there and any upcoming projects you're working on and, and how you're adapting in this environment? Well, yeah, we're trying to survive. We've been serving outdoors and actually right now we're switching to indoors tonight. So we're all stressed out a little bit about getting this right and the menu. We're trying to do very social distance servicing and cooking even in the kitchen and it's all whole new paradigm but it's you know it's challenging but one thing that's exciting about COVID to, to to end this on not a dystopian light is my hope is that people have a new relationship with food coming out of this um, a new consciousness because what we're what yeah, you, you would know this better but my guess is we're going to come out of COVID seeing that if you succumb to COVID the, the gross majority, not even gross, I mean, it, it, right now, I, the latest I heard yesterday was 92% of when they say underlying conditions are food-related. 92% food-related. And the three that are food-related are diabetes, 
obesity and, and heart disease. All three are connected to diet. And so, you know, the, 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 if we can come out of this, whatever this is and whatever we do come out of it, and understand that, you know, one way to think about a vaccine is our diet and one way to think about bolstering our immunity, because that's what vaccines aren't cure-alls, they're boosting your immunity. And yep. that's, food, that's what food is. And people, that connection in America, food is fuel has been the thesis. But this now may change the, the conversation. I had a conversation last week, I still can't, I woke up the other night thinking about it in the middle of the night. The scientist was telling me that of the three underlying conditions, diabetes, is the most is the worst for covid the most prevalent i mean it's really a disaster but he was saying look let me put it to you in these terms our study showed that if covid hit in 1975 when type 2 diabetes was not non-existent but very small percentage of the population covid would have been a bad flu season mm -hmm. Just on diabetes alone, that's not that's not obesity, it's not heart condition, not that, nothing. And you you look at that and you say that's you know that's great, great. That's you know that's it, isn't it? That's it's like we keep looking for these silver bullet you know interventions when in fact we really need to think about immunity and the fact that immunity can come from this hedonistic principle to me is a wide opening opportunity. Well, you are you're preaching to the the choir here. I 100% oh, agree. You guys are doing great work. You really are, and and disseminating this information. We all have to talk about thank it in our different well, ways. Well, so you, you have to. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, look, 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. That means that 88% of us aren't. And you mentioned di diabetes. The numbers increase exponentially when you talk about people who are pre-diabetic and don't even know it. And if you look at the outcomes in COVID in, in those major groups, like comorbidity, essentially. You know, this is our, it used to be, I think about it this way, health, wellness, and, and for many people, I think pre-COVID, you would think of it as something like a little bit more nebulous, a little bit like more fluffy, something, you know, people go to the spa, it's fancy, and maybe if I get one of these things like diabetes, you know, I'll eventually get on medication and maybe, right. um, yeah. yeah, things will, de I'll deteriorate later in life, but I don't have to worry about it. And now with COVID, the, these diseases could kill you overnight and it's scary. And I think it makes nutrition, it, 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 the stakes are higher, it's more serious. And it does come, so much of it is driven by nutrition and what we eat. So it's an important discussion. And it's life or death for many people on the borderline right now with, with metabolic yeah. health. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we gotta change the conversation. I'm hoping that this moment will elicit some consciousness that wasn't there before this terrible year. 100% agreed. Well, Dan, thank you for all that you are doing. I think everyone listening will have a new appreciation and affection for the carrot. So please, <laughs> please, please share that photo. And thank you for all the incredible work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be well.